they do think that the only countries that are capable of working together are democracies. And therefore, the first thing you have to do is to preserve your own democracy. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard the voice of Robert Cooper, former senior diplomat, a Brit who spent much of his career trying to build a common EU foreign policy. He explores the art of diplomacy down the centuries in his new book, The Ambassadors. We'll hear about the characters he profiles, the lessons he's drawn, and what he thinks about big EU foreign policy challenges today including relations with China. Later in the podcast, we'll also dive into the EU's big food fight, the battle for hundreds of millions of euros in farm subsidies. One of the big questions, how green will the final deal be? But first, to the extraordinary story that dominated the start of this week, the forced landing in Minsk of a Ryanair jet that was flying between two EU capitals, followed by the detention of Belarusian opposition activist and journalist Roman Pratasevich and his partner Sofia Sapega. This all took place on the eve of a summit of EU leaders, who talk tough on Belarus and approve new sanctions as well. But will their response make any difference? And why did Alexander Lukashenko go to such lengths on the EU's doorstep? Let's get into all of that now with our podcast panel. So a warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Chief Brussels correspondent David Herzenhorn, naturally enough, in Brussels. Hi, David. Hi there. And joining us uh, also this week, an editor who is perfectly placed to talk about our main topic, Jan Chensky. Jan's in Brussels as well this week. Hi, Jan. Hi. And uh, you're particularly well qualified because you know Belarus well, and you also oversee coverage of mobility, which of course includes the aviation sector. And uh, we had a story where both of those areas, if you like, collided uh, this week. So one of the interesting things about this story, I think, David Reem Yan, is that it happened right on the eve of a European Council summit. So EU leaders were immediately on the spot in terms of being pressured to come up with a quick response. David, how do you think they did on that front? Well, there's no question they felt under pressure. And, and in a way, you know, we shouldn't joke about these things, but Lukashenko's uh, government hijacked not only a plane, but a European leaders summit, uh, much to his own dismay, I think, in the end, because the response was much quicker and much more forceful than uh, the European Union is known for. It typically struggles on the foreign policy front. In fact, after the August presidential election in Belarus widely uh, denounced uh, worldwide as fraudulent. The EU struggled for three months to bring sanctions against uh, Lukashenko's government over that election. Uh, those three months were essentially shortened to little more than uh, 24 hours in response to this uh, incident where the plane was forced down. And what we've seen is very quickly Airlines were already on their own uh, refusing to fly over Belarusian airspace. Uh, one of the measures that the European Council announced was that it would stop the uh, Belarusian national carrier, Belavia, from flying into EU airspace or accessing EU airports, but also some chaos as Russia has uh, retaliated, blocking some flights. We know passengers stranded today at uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. So uh, very much a, a quick and forceful reaction by the EU, but many details to be worked out. They've also, uh, the core of this is sanctions, additional sanctions against the Lukashenko government and individuals, potentially entities, also um, targeted sanctions that could go after sectors of the economy. But all that to be worked out it has to be run through the legal services. It's very hard to develop those kinds of sanctions, obviously. 
Jan, let me um, ask you to try and delve into the mind of Alexander Lukashenko. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to have basically intercepted an airliner flying between two EU capitals, forcing it down to arrest a 26-year-old journalist and activist. Why would he do that? It's an astonishing move for uh, for Lukashenko. He's for years tried to do this complicated dance between Moscow and the EU of uh, toying with both and ensuring he's got some freedom of maneuver. The fraudulent election largely closed that area, but this completely ends it. I mean, there's really, he's only got one direction of travel now, and that's uh, under uh, Moscow's umbrella. But I think that this extraordinary step is a sign of the danger that these, that the free media poses to Lukashenko. The opposition movement inside Belarus is largely leaderless. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who was the lead opponent to him in the August election, is in exile in Lithuania. Most other activists have fled the country or are under arrest in Belarus. Yet the opposition movement and the protests have largely been organized by bloggers. So he sees this as an existential threat to his regime. He issued a warning today. Today is the first time that he's actually addressed the situation. And he clearly warned other opposition uh, activists who are in exile that we know where you are and we'll come after you. Mm. Reem, you were part of our team covering the EU summit this week. It uh, started uh, Monday evening with a dinner where the main discussion was meant to be about Russia. Then, of course, it ended up being primarily about Belarus. Slightly strange situation for us, too, in that the leaders were once again meeting in person. But even though the coronavirus situation has improved, the European Council doesn't yet think that journalists can be allowed on the premises. So we have to follow these things remotely. But you still, I think, heard plenty from the Elysee and from Emmanuel Macron. Uh, what did you make of what he was saying about this? I mean, to, allow me just to say one thing, which is that I thought it was really astounding that what Lukashenko was doing was also kind of double daring the EU with not only his hijacking, but then as the leaders were meeting to try to figure out a response, they released this I think what can only be referred to as a hostage video. And it was like he was daring them to say, you know, show me what you got. And this theme came back, of course, during the press conference at the end of the European Council summit uh, with President Macron, when a journalist asked him, you know, so far sanctions against Lukashenko have not been a deterrent. Also calls for the immediate release of prisoners, whether it's a Protasevich or uh, even Navalny in Russia, have basically gone unanswered. And so what really can the EU do? And it was another extraordinary moment between Macron and journalists. He kind of very calmly, but super defiantly, turned the question back at the journalist saying, what other measures do you think we should have done? And so, of course, the reporter said, it's not up to me to answer that, it's up to you. And eventually said, uh, clearly, with Russia, on frozen situations, progressive sanctions clearly don't work. And we are at a moment of truth with Russia. So that seems to be like a change in tack in the way he has been approaching Russia, since we know over the past two years, he has been advocating for more dialogue, constantly saying that Russian President Vladimir Putin, but also Russia, are European and their places with Europe, but of course not being met with any kind of constructive uh, steps on the Russian side. And so here we are hearing from President Macron saying, 
we are at a moment of truth uh, with Russia, but actually not saying anything explicitly on what that should mean. He is unable to provide a path forward. And I think this is really at the heart of the issue here. Is Europe playing in the same league or even at the same in the same match as its adversary, in this case, Russia? Do they understand that Russia is basically taking over the rules of the international rules-based system that the Europeans are very keen on preserving and turning them around and using them to basically force the Europeans into a corner. And so far, the response from the Europeans has been at best tame and perhaps at worst lame. Right. I guess the thing is, there is this dilemma, right, right, David? I mean, you've got people like Putin and Lukashenko who play hardball. They do not play by the rules. But if you are the European Union and you, you know, pride yourself on being a rules-based, values-based organization, you can't do what Putin does. You can't do what Lukashenko does. You don't want to do what they do. So how can you be effective in kind of influencing their behavior? You can try. Uh, Donald Trump certainly tried because these guys not only play hardball, they play fantasy ball. And one thing that is a little bit uncomfortable for the West, and we should take note of this, as they call this not just a hijacking, but say that it's unprecedented and unheard of, that in fact, in 2013, at the request of the United States, France and Spain denied access to airspace to the plane of Evo Morales, then the president of Bolivia. And that plane was forced down in Austria so that the US could look for Edward Snowden, who they thought was on board. And Ukraine forced down a Belarusian, ironically, uh, passenger airplane in 2016 that had just taken off from Kiev. So it's not entirely unprecedented. And yet there are key differences. But there really is only one path forward. And this is a real question. And Macron, it's very impolitic, of course, at this moment for him to say sanctions don't work, but they don't work. Putin the other day said he'll meet with uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, his spokesman said, but if anybody wants to say that Crimea isn't part of Russia, there's nothing to talk about. So obviously, EU sanctions since 2014, trying to reverse the annexation of, Ru of Crimea have not accomplished very much. But just saying that sanctions don't work isn't enough anymore. And that's the thing. That's the question that is put to a president like President Macron. Yeah. So what does work? Sanctions could have a much bigger and faster impact on a, on a country of 10 million with a shaky economy than it would against Russia. So I think that the danger for Lukashenko is that he has really put himself fully in the sights of, of the West by doing this, this Ryanair stunt. Yeah, well, I guess we're just going to have to see how this develops. But it feels like, you know, we're in for the long haul here. As you say, Jan, I mean, sanctions could have um, a fairly kind of quick impact if the EU can agree on sanctions that are substantial enough. And then, of course, the question is, if they are substantial, how much do they hurt, you know, the general population rather than Lukashenko, who it feels like with this incident is basically saying, all I care about is is my survival. and I don't really care what happens to anybody else, including, you know, my own population. I think also there's a broader question, which is, are we at a point where the Europeans have to think about a paradigm shift? Are they going to stay on the back foot just reacting to whatever Belarus or Russia does in their neighborhood, in their own countries? Or are they going to try to recover some sort of initiative and become active players as opposed to just reacting? Mm. Okay, uh, let's uh, leave it there for now. David, Reem and Jan, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, David, Reem and Jan will be back with us a bit later in the podcast with some uh, recommendations for reading or listening or things to watch. 
So the big bun fight in uh, Brussels this week is over the EU's common agricultural policy. It's a huge slice of the EU's budget. And this is something of a ritual. And let's bring in our agriculture reporter, Eddie Wax, to tell us more about it. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Andrew. Well, let's just start, maybe just start with some, some numbers. How much money are we talking about here? So because this reform has already been so delayed and so bogged down in endless negotiations, there's been a two-year delay. Um, so it should have started this year, but it starts in 2023. So it's slightly less money than usual, but it's still 270 billion euros. That's for the five years. And if you look at the seven-year period, which started this year, that's almost a third of the, well, that's over a third of the EU's budget. Well, so it's a lot of money. It's uh, also, as you say, it's a reform, right? So this is meant to be a new version of the common agricultural policy. What's, what's different this time? Well, this time the common agricultural policy is really under pressure from, from so many different camps to change. And some diplomats are very upset with that. They say that it's having too many strings attached to it and it's being pulled in too many different directions as opposed to staying as the sort of simple farm subsidy support scheme that it was set up as in the 1960s. So it's under huge pressure to become more green and respond to the European Green Deal and become more climate friendly. But it's also now under equal amounts of pressure to become more socially protective of workers and to have more employment law linked into it to make sure that, you know, big farmers who are employing lots of maybe seasonal workers are not exploiting those people on their farms. Right. Interesting. And so what we have at the moment is a kind of struggle to finish, to conclude the cap reform, to reach a deal. I believe this is known in Brussels um, jargon as a jumbo trilogue. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. There's so much jargon and silly, uh, especially when it comes to the CAP, the, the CAP, uh, which in itself is jargon. There's so much jargon being thrown around. So a jumbo trilogue is when you have two parallel sets of very high level meetings. Not only do you have all the ministers debating in a room going round and round until they can whittle down their own proposals and form a common position, which they can accept. But then in parallel, you also have the normal sets of super trilogues going on, which is where the entire cap is being negotiated between the MEPs, the European Commission and Portugal at the moment, who are negotiating on behalf of all the other countries in the other room. So it's a, it's a way of trying to bridge the gap and trying to speed up this uh, very lengthy process, which, as we've seen, has already taken three years. So they do really need to kind of get on with it at this point. OK, because it's a jumbo trilogue, I'm tempted to ask what the elephant in the room is, but I won't. Uh, instead, tell us what are the big contentious points here? What are the big fight? Obviously, they're trying to finalise this. They may well even have reached a deal by the time some of our listeners uh, hear this segment. So what are the big, uh, the big battle lines that they're fighting over right now? I'd say the biggest battle line is over these uh, eco-schemes. So that's the major green new flagship element of the reform, which are billed as, you know, the way to turn the cap green, the way to make farming sustainable and move it away from contributing around 10% of the EU's greenhouse gas emissions. So it's basically a fight between the parliament and the, and the countries on this front. The countries are really worried that farmers won't take up these schemes in the first couple of years and that therefore all this money, which could be being poured into the normal subsidies for farmers, which farmers are you know, pretty much desperate to have because their incomes are so low anyway, won't be, you know, will, will be lost. They're worried that all that money will go to waste. Whereas the, the environmentalists and some people in the parliament say that that's a false, that's a false fear, that they're only drumming up that fear because they basically want to just keep business as usual and keep trying to hold on to as, many, as much money for these uh, supposedly harmful subsidies called direct payments, which have very few kind of environmental conditions attached to them. So 
I'd say the fight over the eco schemes is, is the big one. Um, and there's also a big fight about what percentage of the overall pot of money should be devoted to those eco schemes. Okay. And um, in times past, you know, we've seen some rather colourful protests, different ways of of lobbying. You know, we've had farmers deposit uh, various substances around the European Commission headquarters over the years. Is there much kind of lobbying going on at this stage of the negotiations and who's doing it and how are they doing it? Yeah, the whole question of lobbying is, is really, really interesting. I mean, this world is quite an opaque one, this world of farming policy. I think lobbying is really important. Yesterday, we saw Greenpeace trying to um, make headlines. Uh, they poured an organic, I'm told, green paint all over the steps of the European Parliament to sort of signal that they think this is a, a greenwash, uh, what's going on with the cap reform right now. But then you also you have the main farmers lobby, Copper and Kajeka, um, who were invited into the building to discuss the cap reform with the Portuguese presidency of the EU Council yesterday. And that provoked some, some uh, backlash on social media from uh, climate change activists who are upset that farmers get such a are being able to influence, uh, you know, policymakers at such a crucial time. Mm. Okay, well, listen, we're going to let you get back to it. It looks like you've you've already had a few long days and you may have a few more, or at least one long night before the deal gets done. We'll be sure to include uh, links to your stories in uh, our show notes. But Eddie, for now, thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up next, veteran diplomat, author and foreign policy thinker Robert Cooper on the history of diplomacy, the challenges of a common EU foreign policy and why he thinks the EU needs a different approach when it comes to China. Stay with us. Hi, this is Jack Blanchard, Politico's UK political editor in London. Every week on my Westminster Insider podcast, I take a deeper look at how British politics and the characters involved, really work. We've tackled the art of political drinking, looked at what happens when budgets go badly wrong, and assessed how the pandemic has changed Westminster for good. This week, we'll be looking at the extraordinary power and influence wielded by special advisers within government, following the jaw-dropping testimony of Boris Johnson's former aide, Dominic Cummings. If you haven't already, do please subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts to get every episode of Politico's Westminster Insider. Now, let's get back to Andrew Gray and the EU Confidential team. So now let's get to my conversation with Robert Cooper, a former leading light of the EU's foreign policy apparatus, a senior British diplomat and also an accomplished author. His latest book is called The Ambassadors, Thinking About Diplomacy from Machiavelli to Modern Times. And as the title suggests, it covers a lot of ground. I think about five centuries worth of diplomacy. Historically, this is a profession which attracts some, some extraordinary people. And when I started talking to Robert Cooper, he explained the idea behind the book. Although, as you see from the book, I'm intellectually an enormous admirer of Henry Kissinger, I found the book that he wrote called Diplomacy rather unsatisfactory because it's a great history of Europe and the USA in foreign relations, but it doesn't actually tell you about how diplomacy works. And that was what I trying was trying to do. Robert Cooper also picked out some of his favourite figures in the book. In particular, Talleyrand, the French diplomat who was active in the 18th and 19th centuries. He's a mysterious character in a way, because I think he's very difficult to, to grasp. 
just as I think he's somebody clearly who was witty and charming. There's this little scene when he comes up behind Madame du Tour de Pain in America and says to her, he says in French, of course, but he says to her, uh, Madame, I have never seen anybody spit a leg of lamb with such majesty. <laughs> and then I asked Robert Cooper to bring things out of history and up to date and tell us something about people he's seen working firsthand in the world of foreign affairs, people who particularly impressed him. My two bosses, Javier Solana and Cathy Ashton, they were both people who had a fantastic ability to see what was going on in other people's minds. Cathy had an enormously useful quality that she was so fascinated by people that she was able to be friendly and pleasant to people who she detested and who's, who she disagreed with in every way, but you would never see. Mm. And it wasn't that she was kind of dishonest. It was that she was so interested in them as people that she wanted to draw them out and hear what they had to say. One of the things that struck me about the book is that these are overwhelmingly people who were working in the service of, of a state, of a country or a nation state. And the latter part of your career was spent helping or trying to build a foreign policy on behalf of a group of states. And I wonder how difficult that is. There are some people who would question whether it's even possible when you have 27 now member states, all with their own foreign policy interests, their own foreign policy apparatus. Yeah, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to get everybody together in the EU. And that's a big challenge, but it can be done. And I remember somebody coming out of a European Council and asking them, well, was there anything significant, anything significant happened? And he said, well, well, not much happened, but there was a very good atmosphere. And actually, when you're in a group of people like that, that matters enormously. That If you can get people, if you can create a sense of common purpose, uh, it's very easy to quarrel when you're 27. But if you can find subjects that bring people together or find a policy line that brings people together, then you can really do something. Where would you see examples of that? Where would you th think that the European Union particularly succeeded in, in finding a common line? Well, for me, I think the real strategic moment in the EU was in its 2002 or 2004, somewhere around then, with the big enlargement. And I can remember saying to an um, American friend who was um, deeply involved in uh, Iraq, I remember saying, we're the people who do regime change. <laughs> now, that was pretty hubristic of me, and it turns out to be a bit more difficult than we thought. But nevertheless, I do think that that was a transformative moment in Europe. And, okay, there are some problems yet to be solved, but that, I still think, is the best thing that the EU has ever done, apart from inventing itself. So if there was, obviously there was success in, in enlargement and in, in making the European Union uh, much bigger, bringing in new members, but that of course brings its own problems because then you do have more people around the table, it becomes more difficult to agree a common line. I mean, we're talking just after, you know, the foreign ministers for the second meeting in a row haven't been able to approve, you know, mildly critical comments about uh, China and its uh, crackdown in Hong Kong because one country, Hungary, is holding things up. I mean, 
you know, can you really conduct foreign policy on that basis? How long can you keep the unanimity rule in place if you want to be a kind of serious geopolitical player? Yeah, well, I think there are other problems with Hungary and Poland too, actually. Right. I mean, perhaps talk about, because that's also the question, right? Do you still have a kind of common worldview once you have countries like, or I would say governments like the current uh, Hungarian and Polish one and, and others, such as the current Slovenian prime minister, people who, yes. you know, have a kind of illiberal view of the world. And I don't know, I don't think that there's an instant uh, solution to those problems. But I do think that it's an essential question, because I do think that the only countries that are capable of working together are democracies. And therefore, the first thing you have to do is to preserve your own democracy. To be honest, actually, as you, you mentioned China, I'm a bit sceptical about thinking that anything we do can change the way in which China is governed. Can you change the way China behaves, I guess, then is the question, at least externally. Yes. And that, I think, is where I would, that I, is, I think is where I would concentrate. And therefore, I think, in a sense, we've got more right to call China out about Hong Kong, where it's not in line with the treaty it signed with the UK. And most serious of all is we need to be very clear with China about the South China Sea. I think those are areas where it's entirely legitimate. I'm afraid that whatever one thinks about the treatment of the Uyghurs, that lecturing the Chinese on it or pinprick sanctions on it are not going to change it. So concentrate on what you can do rather than trying to do things which are not possible. But you would have people, and there will be people listening to this conversation, who will say, but though these are fundamental European values, human rights. You yes. know, the European Union has to speak out, has to take action, otherwise... And I'm not suggesting that we abandon those values. I'm just suggesting that we should try to be effective. And making gestures is not the best use of your time and your resources. And what we really ought to do if we want to promote democratic values is make them work ourselves. If we are more successful than China in ways which are probably hard to measure, I mean, economics is important, but that's not the only thing. But if we are visibly successful as a society and as a political community, and that means that you're united and that you, you're decent and people lead decent lives, that's what really matters. And therefore, I would say the first thing is to look after yourself, make your own system work. Just following on from China, obviously, one of the, well, the current debates, it's probably a debate that you, you know, that you were hearing when you were in Brussels too, is the debate about strategic autonomy and how much of a separate place on the world stage uh, Europe could and should have. So, you know, we see these this kind of increasing rivalry between the United States and, and China as two kind of economic superpowers. Is there a separate place for Europe? And if so, where is it? Or does Europe really have to take sides? Well, I think the sides decide themselves, actually. First of all, like it or not, we are the child of the USA. And that's why the Trump presidency was such a horrible experience for everybody because it was the US which half-invented the EU. And, you know, without the backing of NATO, I don't think that the EU would exist either. So I think the sides are, have already chosen themselves. But the strength of the West ought to be pluralism. So that doesn't mean to say that we should be exactly like the US or we should follow the US in everything we do. So having another Western model, that can only be a good thing. And therefore, 
autonomy, autonomous thinking, that can only be good. Even if it irritates the US, because I think there are some... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Irritating people is positive. <laughs> makes them, makes okay. them think. Um, what do you think are the opportunities at the moment, particularly, I suppose, for the West or for the European Union in the current geopolitical landscape? I'm not really involved in the business now, so I can't say. But, for example, I'm struck that there's the European Union, suspected, I guess, by a sort of acquaintance of mine from the EU, Karl Hartzell. There's the EU trying again to fix politics in Georgia. And now there's a challenge if you ever want to see one. But there's somebody who's actually found a constructive way to approach Georgia. If you've got a little state like Georgia to work, and I actually think the same with Kosovo as well, if you could turn a non-functioning state into a functioning state, that can make a big difference in a region. Mm. Is there anything at the moment that you feel is not getting enough attention in, in the world of foreign policy? Or are there anything that people are getting wrong? Anything that makes you, you know, shout at the radio or the television when it, ah. when it comes on? <laughs> no, I'm uh, much more concerned about my own country at the moment, which seems to be not getting a lot of things right. Mm. So uh, that's what really bothers me. And by the way, can I just put in a plug for one yes. of the chapters? Because the chapter that I, in a way, I think almost got most from was, I don't know why, but I decided to write a chapter on two small countries. And so I wrote the chapter about Denmark and Finland. And actually, I found both of them fascinating. And in both cases, the key to their success, and that's Denmark facing a gigantic Germany and Finland facing a gigantic Russia. The key to their success was having a political system which brought people together. So that's why I think foreign policy begins at home. Is at the end of however many pages it is. That's where I, yeah, that's where I come down. Yeah, and I remember a, a passage specifically about that, and and how that in a sense that's where the rot starts, right? If things start to go wrong yeah. domestically, yeah. then you end up with you know belligerent foreign policy and and and. Yeah. But let me ask you, finally, we try and um, do recommendations on the podcast, just of things that people may have read or watched or listened to recently. Is there anything that uh, that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I don't know. I mean, I actually just read Anne Applebaum, Twilight of Democracy, that I think is a terrific book. And I just started on a very fat book about the Greek Revolution, because it's the... Uh, 200th anniversary, and I'm reading a biography of Capodistria as well. Do you do any light reading? Uh, well, light reading, um, every night before I go to sleep, I read a chapter in the original French of The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. Such an encouraging book. That sounds like a good recommendation. He becomes enormously rich and deals with all his enemies. <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a very good note on which to end things. Robert Cooper, thank you very much. Thank you. Love fun. Thank you. So Robert Cooper just gave us a recommendation or two and now it's time to bring back the podcast panel to see if they have anything to add. Jan, you're our, our special guest, so why don't you go first? What, what do you recommend? Yeah, I'm finishing reading a book called The Vital Question, which is about how uh, life arose. And it's a really interesting look. The, the biochemistry is way above my head, but it gives you a really interesting look as to how the first cells and the first biochemical processes actually came around. Very interesting stuff. Okay, as the title suggests. Okay, Reem, what about you? 
I'm reading a book called The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, and it's written by psychoanalyst, actually Belgian psychoanalyst, Esther Perel, who also wrote, I, some of our listeners might be familiar with her other book, Mating in Captivity, and it's truly very, very interesting. I think she also has a podcast, right? A sort she of does. podcast where there's, it kind of examines relationships. So, so I've been told, very interesting. David, what have you got? Uh, so Rose Gottmuller, the former Deputy Secretary General at NATO, has a book out on her role in negotiating the New START Treaty. So I'm not reading it yet, but looking forward to it. Uh, nuclear nonproliferation, obviously, taking a backseat in recent years. So see if uh, that generates some interest. Well, some nice light reading uh, recommendations from our <laughs> from our panelists <laughs> there. Um, I think we'll we'll leave it there. I've been too busy to have any kind of leisure time lately, so we'll just leave those recommendations there. David, Reem, and Jan, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us or subscribe for free. We always appreciate a rating or a review, especially a good one. Or you can send us feedback directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.